Hi, I'm Lauren. My pronouns are she, her. And this is Demis Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we taste coins, we feel that burn of new love, and I talk to my amazing guest, Alexandra Rowland, about the taste of gold and iron. One false coin could topple an empire. Hardu, so hi Alex, the it's Prince of Arras, such a privilege no to welcome you on, and I can't stress how this book was everything that I didn't know that yes, I needed. Yes, he remains at odds so with much, one of the um, most powerful so ambassadors. Um, like this is really the, the father the book of, the, of my heart. Of the queen's uh, I spent new child. Think, like six years and then a hunting party goes terribly and, awry, uh, and Cardu finds himself under suspicion of attempted murder. Find to prove his loyalty to his sister and salvage his reputation, Cardu takes. Feel like Cardu takes responsibility. I've been going through so much stress with like personal stuff right now, like work related stress. So this book he just brightened the help of his new Every appointed time bodyguard, I picked it up, I can the coldly handsome and be like, you know what? Who seems to tolerate him away from this book? This book is this but what book is appears everything. to be a straightforward crime spiral into like a complex one of the counterfitting operation with a powerful enemy at its heart. In a rash to like where princes can touch taste like hospitality in a way, like opening my home and people and side by side with history. Comfortable on the couch, fetching them a drink. Um, the conspiracy just, they like, discover giving them that cripple the kingdom's to, financial like, get standing away from the rest bring of about the world. You didn't just make them a drink. You got snacks. You got everything. I got snacks. Got a cheese tray. Got some charcuterie out. <laughs> Absolutely, like, and not just the not just the nice plates, like the best plates. Everything. Yes, that's that's <laughs> what this book is. So, can you first introduce yourself to our listeners, please, who might not be familiar with you? Certainly. Uh, and I'll introduce the book as well, since I don't think that we've actually mentioned the title of it yet. Um, I'm Alexandra Rowland. I am a fantasy author. Uh, I wrote A Conspiracy of Truths, A Choir of Lies, and Some by Virtue Fall. Uh, my newest book is A Taste of Golden Iron. It is a MM queer uh, fantasy romance set in a uh, country that's kind of flavored on the like Renaissance Ottoman Empire. Uh, and it is about an exquisitely beautiful prince and his hot, beefy, stoic bodyguard. Uh, and they er, they investigate a coin counterfeiting plot and fall in love and kiss. As you do. As you do. So what kind of books do you like to read? We like to ask everyone this because if any good recommendations, or anything we've not heard of, we're always interested. Mm, sure. Um, I mean, I'm a big fantasy fan, obviously. Um, I sometimes veer a little bit into into sci-fi, um, but like fantasy is where my where my heart lives. Uh, I've been reading uh, another book that's actually quite like A Taste of Golden Iron in that it has a similar kind of relationship set up. And it's also a fantasy romance called Reforged by Seth Haddon, which comes out uh, in October. Uh, very exciting. Uh, if you like that fealty dynamic, uh, go for that one. And of course, also, I'm constantly yelling about uh, Victoria Goddard's books. Um, she wrote uh, The Hands of the Emperor. And right now I am beta reading her next book that comes out in a couple months, uh, At the Feet of the Sun, which also has kind of like a fealty relationship, like the the worthy lord and his his loyal vassal. Uh, which is like the trope that of of my heart. It's like the ultimate the ultimate uh, thing for me. Well, I know what I'm going to be doing after I get off of this this call with you and Hell pre-ordering yeah. <laughs> pre-ordering those straight away. Yes. So, where did your inspiration for this book come from? So, good question. 
I started out knowing that I wanted to write about like that core trope that I just mentioned, the worthy Lord and his loyal vassal. And I was like, and they should kiss. And so so that was kind of the, the spark point for it. And everything else kind of built from there. Um, in terms of inspiration, it was a really interesting journey um, because, as I mentioned, I went through like six years and seven seven drafts of this book. And when I say drafts, I mean like starting from like a complete blank page every time, often with a completely new plot every time. Um, everything about this book has changed since I first thought of it, except for those two main characters. Um, and so it's it's been a journey of like sort of self-exploration and discovering like what it is that I love best and the tropes that I like, um, as well as the exploration of like what the book is about and the the themes on a, a broader level, like how we use power and what we owe to each other uh, and so forth. In terms of the inspiration for the world building, uh, I always like to delve into places that fantasy traditionally hasn't gone to as much, you know? Uh, like we do a lot of like medieval France, medieval England, or like things flavored like that. And so I just wanted to do something that was not that. Uh, I love history. Um, I also read a lot of, of um, historical nonfiction uh, as well. Like the more specific and niche it is, the better. Like the history of tableware or the history of salt, things like that. And uh, and so one of the one of the sort of areas that I was uh, interested in at the time that I started writing this book was the medieval and Renaissance Ottoman Empire. This is the first book I've read that's been fantasy that's set in a world like this. So that's one thing that really stood out to me about it because it does go somewhere mm. a bit different. And we love fantasy. Fantasy is such a rich genre, but it is nice to be able to get something different and a different flavor from yeah. the book. Uh, and, and all of my fantasy books are set in the same world. And so it's kind of kind of like Discworld, like that's kind of what I want to be doing with my career is just like spending my my career exploring this world and slowly building it up uh, bigger and bigger into something really like vast and deeply textured and full of as many things as there are in the real world. So do you think in the future at some point we might have some crossovers with characters where they maybe not even in the book but they're referenced so you kind of know actually that's that has already happened oh. um the inciting incident of this book is the birth of the new crown princess mm. and uh that was mentioned in one scene of a choir of lies just like uh was like a scene in a marketplace and someone was announcing news from like far off places like like world news basically right uh and so the the birth of the the crown princess in Arashd was was one of them and here we are that's so cool that that's now led to to this yes yeah I love that sort of thing just like those kind of crossovers and mentions of places where like dedicated readers will who have sharp eyes will spot them and start seeing like familiar names crop up but that's definitely like a kind of it's a long con, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's something that takes a, a two, three, four, five books to work, really work up to. Uh, but we're, we're getting there now. We're getting there. 
before we get into the book itself, I really want to talk about the cover because the cover is beautiful. Oh my god, I'm not over it. Like I, I they showed me this cover I think September of last year, and I have not stopped freaking out about it since. Uh, it makes so many promises that the text of the book keeps absolutely, um, and it means so much to me as a queer author to see queerness like put front and center on the book and and celebrated like that to me it looks like really not the the gold necessarily well maybe the gold a bit but the rest of it looks like really rich expensive fabric the kind of thing Mm. you can imagine that kadu would have worn yes yes for sure yeah the gold is just such a touch to yes that kind of ottoman empire but also oh of course you're british you're talking about the british cover which is also gorgeous (laughs) Well, we're going to get onto the American cover, which I never normally do, but that has to be done. But you oh, have yes. you have the two of them, and they look so cute. And yes. best thing, they're on the spine. Yes, yes. I really got lucky because the the British cover is just as gorgeous as as the American cover. And like, yeah, yes, absolutely. Like the gold, the shininess of it, absolutely splendid. It's got gold in the title. How can we not have loads of gold on the cover? Of course, of course. But talking about the American cover, which I don't normally do because I am British. <laughs> oh my God, they look so hot together. <laughs> yes. And just the the sheer palpable yearning. Uh, mm. They, I don't, I don't know who at my publisher told the artist to make Evermer's mouth that sexy um, and to like have him like yearning at, at Cato, like so intensely but I'm glad that they did and it's it's incredible they're both so stunning yes and I like the fact that you can look at the little image of the two of them the sort of gold outline Mm. on the British one and you can tell which is which yes on the American cover because on the British gold foil how do you Cado? Cado 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 has a crown I'm probably going to mispronounce that through the whole thing. I am so sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, it as a reader, it happens to me all the time as well. Like I read fantasy books and I'm like, I'm just going to sort of make up how to pronounce this, which is, you know, it's what happens. We do our best. I'm going to blame it on the accent difference. There you go. So you've already said the main romance trope that you like with the yes. Lord and his vassal, but what other romance tropes do you like? Because it's a bit enemies to lovers. There's some bodyguard thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And he's very miserable to start with. Yes, yes. Um, probably my next favorite would be like the forced proximity kinds of tropes, like uh, only one bed, which is uh, happens in this book a couple times, and um, kissing to avert suspicion, which also happens in this book a couple times, um, at least once very, very significantly. Uh, and... I I love those for I I don't know that I can even explain why I love those but um they're fantastic. I think it's because like it makes characters think about like physical intimacy with each other in a different way. Not physical intimacy as a euphemism euphemism for sex, but physical intimacy as like, you know, intimacy itself like closeness and and like the act of touching someone for the first time mm. um, is kind of kind of weird and, and strange, especially if you've known them for a while and you have a, a close working relationship. 
So, so those are probably my next favorite. Uh, and then Enemies to Lovers as a writer is great because it gives you kind of a built-in plot arc. Like, like cool, Enemies to Lovers, we've got the whole, the whole thing there. Um, and it, it added a lot of necessary tension and texture to the beginning, which I think was uh, very useful. Uh, that only came in like towards the middle of my seven drafts of this book. Uh, initially, like they'd known each other for a while and they were they were getting along a lot better. There was one where Evermore had had a crush on him already for years, but there was just something missing there. Like it needed a little bit of, of tooth to it. Um, so I'm glad that I got that work in. Enemies to Lovers is something that I absolutely love. I think yeah. as a romance trope, it's it's one of my favorites because you can enjoy the kind of banter and the mm-hmm. growing of their relationship. I mean, Evermere doesn't banter, but you can enjoy him he, being annoyed. He like snarks a lot in his head. He's awfully judgmental in the privacy of his own head. I do. That's one thing I loved about the book as well. That you didn't do straight, like multiple perspectives, but yeah. in the way some people do it from like first person perspective, but you have sections with both of them and yeah, the inner monologues. I mean, hello. Mm. Yes, yes. And something that I also really enjoyed writing um, in the process of this book was like that the slow shifting of like their opinions about each other. Because so often like it's so it's such a real thing, right? Like so often we meet someone for the first time, form a snap judgment about them and then have to go on this long sort of personal journey of changing our minds about them. And and that was really, really interesting to dig into. This isn't a spoiler because the book is marketed as having romance in it. It's like mm. a big selling point of the book. Absolutely. But how do you as an author, which I've never asked this question before, so I'm really interested. How do you go about creating a slow burn romance like this? Because you have to think about the pacing and knowing what big turning points in the story to have. Because mm. their story is not a simple road to love, is it? No, not at all. Um, Like they've got a lot of complicating factors. I mean, even at the end of the book, there's complicated factors that they're going to have to face and deal with. But the the happy ending part of that is that they get to do it together and they get to like have a partnership that they can rely on to to face those things. How do I do a slow burn romance? That's a good question. Part of it is breaking down the process of falling in love into steps and then handling each of those steps individually uh, and giving giving real space for the characters to have complicated feelings, which are sometimes wrong, um, or, or uh, opinions which are, are incorrect, as I, as I mentioned before. Um, and part of it is just like, giving them reasons not to immediately jump into each other's arms, right? So the enemies to lovers trope is, is one of them. Um, and then there's all, all the like structural kinds of things like the class differences, the power differentials that have to be uh, negotiated. The fact that they're both just like incredibly ethical people, um, which means that they're not like their ethics don't get overridden by impulse very easily. And so just like the sort of people that they are is a reason that they don't jump at each other right away. And and then it's just kind of like taking them from that starting point and just like throwing things at them 
until they move a little bit closer to each other. And then you keep throwing things at them until they move a little closer together. And yeah, I, th- I think that's sort of the, the gist of it there is like that slow process and just like addressing each step of the, the romance individually. And also the, the shifting from like that initial dislike, like there's steps to between that and, and falling in love as well. Like learning to respect the other person for their skills or their abilities um learning the ways in which learning about that person's flaws and the flaws that they think they have versus the flaws that they actually have and just kind of like the slow process of like getting to know someone on a really deep and profound level and there is something quite sexy about a bodyguard oh yes idea oh yes someone at a a book signing that i just had uh, a couple days ago told me that like Uh, There was someone, like, I think he read an article from someone about a movie a few years ago. This is incredibly vague, but it was about, like, how in real life, like, real life bodyguards, people who are employed to protect someone, like, in that situation, like, relationships and, and feelings often do happen because it is a really intense situation to be in with someone and when your whole job is focused on protecting that person and caring for that person like of course feelings just sort of like happen on their own this is my second bodyguard sort of romanticy book yeah and I think I'm a convert now what was the first one I, I desperately need to know what the other one was this vicious grace by Emily Thede okay I haven't read that one yet but it's definitely going on my list we had we had her on the podcast oh she was amazing and the, the book was so good so yeah fantastic or a second yeah. second bodyguard yeah. fantasy romance that I think one and this yes. and I think I'm a convert to them now but in the fantasy world oh yeah and like I need I need more of these in my life absolutely Absolutely. Well, I, I mentioned Reforged, which is coming out, and that's also a, a bodyguard situation. So Seth Haddon was the, the author of that one. Uh, it's Yeah, as soon as I'm off, off this call with you, I'm, I am ordering it straight away. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Kadu can, he's not the only one, but it's a skill that people have and they can touch, taste metals. And that's such an interesting idea. I love that. Where did... Mm, yeah. It's on page 103. We really start to to see it. So he is gambling with someone to win coins. And there are some different coins. There's different metals. And you get quite descriptive about how they feel. Like one tastes of medicine and it tastes bitter. Another one gives him almost like the feel of a location and the scent of tea. And it's it's such a visual and kind of, it just it awakens all of your senses when when you see that that's that's such an amazing thing I've never seen anything like that before in a book like how did you get that idea so kind of from from two perspectives because it it starts quite early in in the book there's hints of it early on part of it was a structural thing because I'm writing a book about a coin counterfeiting plot right and so and and there's lots of information about like debasing the coinage and how important like that commitment to 
like a a value of coinage is to this nation and its financial security and like the the security of its coinage so in real life like when we're figuring out if a coin has been forged it's kind of a much more multi-step process like you have to melt it down or weigh it and you need all of these tools like you can't just like pick it up and know for sure whether or not it's uh counterfeited uh, especially in the pre-industrial era before, like while you have quite good metalworking, you don't have like modern levels of, of excellent, fine uh, metalworking technology. Uh, so with the touch tasting, the magic is, it was kind of a challenge to myself. I wanted to write a very small magic system, as small as I possibly could as a challenge to myself. So I thought, what if you could just pick up a metal and know what metal it was? And so obviously that helps with the counter coin counterfeiting plot because it cuts out all of the, the tedious steps to, uh, to that process. Uh, it means they can do it in the dark if they need to. And it, it kind of tied in with the themes as well. Uh, and then with the, the sensory aspects of it, um, I was really inspired by people who have experiences mm -hmm. of synesthesia where they might associate uh, a letter with a color or a number with a sound um, and have that kind of crossed wires in between their senses. Um, so that's kind of what, what it is. Each person is going to have a completely different personal palette, shall we say, of what different metals uh, taste like through this, this magical sense. Um, and most of them are based on personal memories and associations, or sometimes it's just completely random. Like there's no reason why silver tastes like tea to Kato uh, through his magical sense. Um, that's just the association that his, his particular brain drew between them. Um, and on the other hand, there are some that have like direct connection to specific memories. Um, I think one of the first mentions of this that you get in the book is how one of the signatures of gold is, uh, for him, is a memory of like the sound of a hammer hitting a, a die to, to beat a coin into, into shape, uh, which he experienced when he was very young and uh, with his mother visiting the Royal Mint for the first time. Um, so that's clearly like a very impactful moment for him as a person. And it's impactful enough that it affected this this magical sense. Did you have to do research? Because you you clearly know or seem to know quite a lot about trade and coinage and that kind of thing, which is such a big thing to the, the other plot of the book, not the romance plot, but the other plot. Yeah, um, I I don't think I did... I don't want to say I didn't do research because it's more like a lifetime of being interested in this kind of thing and like a lifetime of noticing this and thinking about it and seeing mentions of it here and there, uh, seeing news articles about like inflation and the economy and just being steeped in it. So did I do specific research? No, not really, but it's always been like, just something that's an interest of mine and on the the periphery of my understanding. And also, like, I have these big philosophies about how money is completely imaginary, right? It's just like a game that we've all sort of implicitly agreed to play with each other. And a coin in and of itself doesn't have 
like uh, if I if I give you a dollar bill or like a, a pound coin, uh, like that's not necessarily worth a loaf of bread, except because we have agreed that it is. And that's fascinating to me because the thing that I'm most interested in, most of all, is like people being people. Uh, and money is one of those situations where people are being people just really, really hard. I love the fact that the Sultan in the book isn't a main, isn't a male character as well. And you have quite a few powerful female characters in the book, which I really liked as a, hmm. we, we need that representation. Yeah, <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And like, I just think it's, we do need that, in- that uh, representation. And also I just like think that they're cool. Uh, like the, like I said, the whole, the whole process of writing this book is like, what is going to make me love this book even more? And so when I had the opportunity to introduce a new character, um, it was like, okay, well, would I love this character more as a reader? Um, if they were a man in this position or if they were a woman or if they were non-binary, because of course this society has a, a socially recognized third gender that's just built into their, their social system. Um, and so like, I really love writing about um, powerful women, especially when they're, like, secondary characters or supporting characters. And that's more of a problem between, like, me and being non-binary. I find it uncomfortable to get inside the head of female characters sometimes. Um, so when I can, like, look at them from one step away from the outside and go look at this person, look how amazing she is look how how powerful and competent and self-assured she is um that's just a i i love reading about those kinds of characters and so of course i love writing about them as well i did want to bring up the third gender but i don't know how you would pronounce the sort of pronouns that you you've assigned uh the the pronouns are che cheer che and cheer okay che che cheer yeah and chem so just the the C with a little tail just makes that ch okay. sound. But I loved again, I loved it. And you've made it quite sort of Ottomany sounding rather than just being they or Yeah or them. Yeah, yeah. Um well because I wanted to emphasize that it is built into the system. Like it's like this is part of their their society and their culture is that they just have this thing. They just view gender as being a a three part thing rather than a two part thing. Um, and so using a particular, using neo pronouns for it um, was a step towards making sure that that was clearly emphasized um, and um, making it sound uh, Turkish flavored or Ottoman flavored. Um, that's something that I frequently do with my world building is that I rely on food, language and clothing in order to give like a flavor and a sense of of place or like some kind of thread of connection to something in the real world um I feel like it makes it feel more grounded and more real and also then it means that some of my readers might read it and see things that are familiar to them and feel like there is a place for themselves in this world um and also like fingers crossed if I ever get a movie deal or anything like then it'll give kind of a clear sense of the aesthetic and um yeah and just like grounding it in a in a sense of place one thing that is so beautiful about 
fantasy right now is it's coming from so many different places the voices that it's coming from and gender and sexuality it's not a big deal it's not like oh my god that's a man in love with a man it just becomes so normative and that I, mm. it's amazing sort of as a reader to read that yeah um and like I said like I'm a I'm a queer author myself and like these are the the sorts of stories that I always wanted to read when I was a teenager and I was really only getting it from fan fiction uh and then in the last probably five or seven years yeah we've seen like such an explosion of of queer characters in science fiction and fantasy which which has been amazing um but yeah like building building a world in which it is normative is very like it's kind of a, a or not even kind of it is a political statement right because it's showing like actually like this can exist like suffering is not an inherent and necessary part of queerness like we can be queer without being sad and 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 having painful experiences of trying to move through society we can just have space in society just like anyone else absolutely so as I said or as we've discussed there are two sort of plots we have our romance plot which oh my god um, I need to find myself to calm down a little bit with that but also we have the so the book starts with a robbery at the shipbuilders guild which has happened when the crown princess has been born I thought that was such a cool sort of side story to fit the romance and all of the politics around because Mm. it's quite a simple story this thing has happened they need to figure out how to do it but then it ties in with with so much in the book and who doesn't love a little bit of mystery yeah and uh absolutely and like it get for one thing um from like a a craft perspective um it gives the characters something to do uh while they're busy falling in love and it ties into a lot of the themes of like uh fidelity and trust and like making promises and keeping those promises which like that's kind of the the core of why the coin counterfeiting plot is is so potentially devastating to uh to this kingdom i i think like it it does seem like a a fairly simple plot on on the surface but like when you think of how crimes and things are investigated in real life um like i think a lot of people were sort of confused and disappointed about how like straightforward it is except in real life like sometimes you know exactly who the criminal is but the problem is like finding the proof that they've Mm. done it right it's not as simple as it is in the movies where you can just like go yes this person is the is the villain like and rip off their their mask and they say you crazy kids um you foiled me again um like a lot of it is having to double and triple check and make sure that you've got your evidence together and even if the person seems really obvious you don't want to jump in and accuse them before you're sure because there's always the chance that you could be wrong and I think a lot of people have not seen that kind of structure in a mystery novel before uh or in rather like a mystery a mystery plot um very frequently my last question before we get into spoilers, which is the bit I've been waiting for, you have two sure. gods that are mentioned throughout the book. And on page 442, 
sort of talk a little bit about this this sort of mythology that you've created and I'm really going to try hard not to butcher these names but we have a goddess it's Sanasi it's Sanasi and okay Usman. brilliant thank you Sanasi who yep. <laughs> she birthed the world she shaped it and filled it with wonderful things and bright opportunities but then we have Usman who sends trials and they sort of counterbalance each other and you see Usman mm. is mentioned a lot if someone either feels yes. like they need to be tested or they are being tested, where did this sort of idea come from that the two gods that you had in your book would counterbalance each other like this? So um, there's three brother-sister pairs in this book. And one of them is Senesi and Usmim. Uh, and one of them is Kado and his sister, the Sultan, Zeliha. Uh, and one of them is Cyranos and his sister, whose name I think is Sylvia. I don't remember off the top of my head. She's only in like two scenes. But so so I knew that I wanted it to be a brother-sister pair just to kind of like r- round out the triad. Um, I knew that Sanasi was the goddess of the sky just because sometimes you get an idea and you know just like, oh, yes, she's the like goddess associated with the world and creation. Um, and of course, like like she's kind of paralleling Zeliha in in many ways as like, like the mother figure. Uh, and I, I knew I wanted to have something to counterbalance it, as you mentioned, um, but I didn't want it to be um, too close to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to do like a, I didn't want to make Usmim, um, who is like the God of like, like he's associated with the underworld, right? But I didn't want, I didn't want to associate him with the devil. And I didn't want to associate him with sin. Like, I didn't want to bring in those kind of, like, Christian cultural assumptions about about this religion. I wanted it to com- be completely different than that. So um, once I, I set that aside, like, Usman is not a god of punishments. He's not the god uh, who, like, will take you to task for everything that you did wrong in the world, Right. It's a much more like collaborative kind of process because Usmim is just giving you opportunities to figure out who you are. Like he's still a, rather than being a God of temptation who is tempting you into wrong, he is giving you opportunities and seeing what you as a person with free will choose to do. And whatever you choose to do is what writes the story of your life and your personality. and also it's it's a very kind of hopeful religion on on some level because like even though Usmim never stops giving you trials, like also he never stops giving you trials. And that means that even if you fail this one, like there's going to be another one and you can try to do better next time. Like the process of of personal growth is never over. Did that answer the question fully? <laughs> I, yeah, it does. I think that's quite a it's, a, it's an interesting idea, actually, that you can... Mm. It does feel quite positive, like he's giving you that space for personal growth. And even at times, they say, I don't want to be tested in this way. I want something more physical that I can feel as a test rather than feeling like more of an abstract test. Yeah. And they almost seem to welcome them at times. It's like, oh, thank you for giving me this test and giving me this opportunity to better myself. Right, absolutely. I mean, because some some tests that are set in front of us are like delicious, delicious tests, right? Like, and they're ones that you want to face. Like, 
the process of writing a book is a, a test in, in some ways, but like, I love doing that. So that's a, a test that I'm, I'm happy with. And some of them, so some of, some of the tests are ones that absolutely suit you and your skill set and your preferences. And some of them are tests that absolutely don't and which like really force you out of your comfort zone. And in many ways, those can make you grow more than the other kind can. And it also it also like parallels like Kado and his anxiety as well. Um, because like he is constantly like facing tests like every five minutes he's facing one test or another. And so so yeah, it was it was sort of tying in with the themes of like the the mental health representation that I was doing as well. This is the point of the episode where I couldn't resist spoilers anymore and me and Alex just had to get into them. So if you haven't read the book, come back when you have because nothing is off limits as, yeah, I had to ask everything. This might not be a spoiler actually, but the, I I wrote in my notes, how like page 58, how children work, but more like how the rights to children work. And mm. it's such an interesting idea that you have like these body fathers who come and they have a kid, but the it, it's very different to what we traditionally see as how parenting and rights to children work. Yeah, so I'm wondering where you got that idea from because I thought it was I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, well, I've I've studied a lot of anthropology and in a lot of matriarchal societies, which um, this one has. Uh, they're not strictly matriarchal in that like men also are are leaders, but um, they do have strict matrilineal inheritance. Um, and the the customs around like children belonging to the mother more than they belong to the father um, is absolutely baked into their society. So in uh, matrilineal cultures like that, the role, quote unquote, or the role that we in our culture put on, the father is instead taken by the mother's brother, right? Like the the duties of being the male role model to the children, being the caretake, male caretaker to the children, those are taken by her brother rather than like whoever it was that like provided the other half of the, the genes. <laughs> so, so when I'm doing world building like that, I, I start from this place and I, um, just sort of explore all of my own cultural assumptions, preconceived notions. Um, I look at a lot of other cultures to see how they have done things. I look at trends overall, the trend of like relying on the uncle rather than the father uh, and so forth. And then I, I broke it down into, okay, well, how do they handle this from a legal perspective as well as like a... Um, uh, perspective of custom. Uh, so they have three types of father. So there's like body father, which is like just your your biological father, who may also be one of your your other fathers. You can have a father that's multiple different of these three types. And then there's a love father, who is um, if your mother did not have a brother, then another sort of close male relation would step in or a, a close male friend of hers who is not like 
the, the biological father could end up being the love father. Or just like a man who she is in love with who moves into her house and just like takes on that role of being like the male sort of role model figure uh, in the child's life. Uh, and then there's uh, the law father, which is like when a when a couple are married, then the man would have quote unquote claim on the children. And we don't have time to get into like all of the intricacies of what what involves uh, or what is involved with with this idea of claim. Um, but yeah, like one of the one of the purposes of marriage in this society is to sort of like share claim on children to handle like the complicated lines of inheritance and to and yeah so so to do all that so yeah so a law father would have to be either someone that the mother is married to or someone who she has deliberately given legal claim on her children to like someone who has legally adopted her children I don't want to say that I feel sorry for for Cyrus because I I don't really I don't think he's a very nice person but I <laughs> I wonder how much of some of his actions might have changed if he maybe grasped this concept a little bit because on mm. the page where you mentioned three chapters of father page 58 he sort of gets a bit like well I don't see the difference you know you're making these these differences and he just doesn't either doesn't want to or can't grasp yeah that it's different and he he doesn't get on with with Caddo yeah and he seems the relationship he doesn't seem to like when Caddo is with with his daughter yeah, so it's Cyrus is a is a complicated guy. Um and he he's not a very nice person. I do still kind of feel sorry for him because like a lot of what has made him grow into not being a very nice person is like his own family circumstances and like the trials that he was offered and there certainly is a world in which he could have made better choices. Uh, when he was offered those trials, but he didn't like he made the choices that he made um, because of his history and his personality. Um, I As to whether it might have turned out differently for him if he fully grasped the concept, like the the three types of, of father that Arashti society has, I don't think that it would because his big problem as a person is that he thinks that he he's a little bit spoiled and a little bit entitled and he thinks that if he just like decides that something is going to be then like he can he can just make it happen and despite all of the times in his life when this has been shown to him that this is not how the world works he persists in believing this thing and so i think that even if he did grasp the subtleties of the differences between the three types of father and like grasped what his actual position was in as the Arashti culture sees it I think that he still would have been like well that might be how it works for other people but it's different for me and I've decided that I'm going to be like a part of of things here and I'm just going to to do that so I don't think that would, it would have like done him much good it just would have done him a more embarrassing kind of bad what is his actual society like? Because his sis his sister seems very dominant, but I don't mm. get the impression that it's the same kind of matriarchal society. Mm. Uh, it's more uh, sort of like equal footing. 
Uh, like I wouldn't say that it's one or the other. They do have a more strict need for marriage in that society. Uh, they have a concept of um, bastards, which Arashti society does not. Uh, Arashti society is like, who cares whether the mother was married? That's irrelevant to anything that we're talking about right now. Obviously, the child is hers, whether or not she's married. Who cares? Uh, whereas in uh, in Oisic society, uh, which is where Saranos is from, um, like that is a, a thing that exists and is a problem. And people think that having children should be something that married people do, which is its own kind of complicated set of problems, right? Um, but they do have a more like gender equal society. And for Cyrano's in particular, like his sister absolutely is the more dominant one. That's more of like a family culture thing rather than like a, a society culture thing. Because I think that would affect some of the way he is as well, because mm. Now we're in spoilers. His the counterfeit coins was his idea, and I don't think she necessarily agreed with it as being a smart idea. No, no, she didn't because like it is like very complicated, and it would take a long time to see real effects. And um, like you're doing this counterfeit coin thing in a nation where they have people who can sense if a coin has been debased just by touching it. Like the secret was going to come out instantly. But I, so I think that like part of her motivation was just like i'm going to see my brother like humiliated once and for all and she kind of got a little bit like oh maybe you're actually making some progress now when he uh kind of like had this uh relationship with the sultan zeliha uh and then like had a child with the sultan uh, i think that if he had been more savvy uh, if he had been someone more like his sister, like he could have leveraged that to uh, to his advantage a little bit more. But no, all of his downfalls were because of who he is as a person. So maybe this needing to prove himself. She was she was the one more. She, he was trying to prove himself, and her she was more behind the shipbuilders guild investigate or the shipbuilders guild break in. Uh, like that's kind of where she was focusing her efforts. Um, which honestly was probably like, if you're going to commit a crime, like that's probably a better, smarter one to do. And his relationship with, with Kado really confused me at points because at first he's kind of like, no, you know, I think he's going to harm our child. You know, he seemed to come across as being quite suspicious in that way. Mm. Then he wanted, then he sort of said to his sister at one point, I kind of want to back off and leave Kado alone. And there's a scene where the letters have come suggesting that Kado is committing treason and his sister's like well of course of course you didn't and mm. Silenus is just there making comments it's like why a why are you getting involved and b why are you sticking up for him which is weird uh why is he getting involved because he can't keep his mouth shut like he just he compulsively as a person cannot keep his mouth shut and cannot keep himself out from like mucking around in business that is not his the letters are from I uh like his sister, I if I recall correctly, and like she's trying to like she thinks that the investigation or that the um the plot that he is attempting is already kind of like failing and that he's being incompetent at it, which he is. Uh so she's trying to like salvage something from it. Uh and he is 
he has decided at that point that actually his sister sucks and his whole family sucks and maybe he should like try to ingratiate himself to uh Kado and and even more to to Zeliha. And so he's like brown nosing and being a, a bootlicker and a terrible little man, a uh, smarmy thing. Um, so so yeah, like he's he's not being he's being a little bit erratic. He's changing his mind right and left and just like making bad choices constantly. It's for so much of the novel he is, and I'm assuming events that happened before from the fact that. Cardo feels uncomfortable around him a lot. He's just so shitty to him. And think you can't suck up and be like, oh no, of course you of course you wouldn't commit treason on one occasion and it suddenly expect everything's gonna be okay. It just seems like such a stupid right. idea. Well the the initial friction that Cardo had with Cyranos before the book begins is a lot of it is to do with Cardo's anxiety. Because, you know, when you have anxiety and someone, like, doesn't really click with you, like, you sort of build that up into your head as, like, oh, my God, they hate me, they hate me, they hate me. Cyrano's didn't really start getting paranoid and about Kato directly until, like, halfway through Zeliha's pregnancy. And then it was that he was sort of realizing that, like, fatherhood was a real thing on the horizon for him. And he has kind of family trauma uh, which I believe is mentioned once in the book, but it was kind of like an offhand reference about how like a couple generations ago, like one of his um, uh, great uncles, I believe, uh, just like did a lot of murder in the rest of his family and like intrigue and um, like killed off a bunch of the the other ones for his own personal gain. So Cyrano's has like direct experience and sort of inherited family trauma about that and is bringing a lot of those preconceived notions and putting them on Kato. Um, Cause he's looking at Kato as like, oh, you're the second son, the new crown, you're first in line to the throne right now, but uh, her majesty is pregnant and you're about to be pushed down one step of the ladder. Cyrano's doesn't realize that Kato is like really happy about that fact. <laughs> and Cyrano's is looking at this as like, if that were me and I were pushed down another level, I would freak the fuck out. And I would do something about it and I would hurt people about it. So Cyrano's is just like projecting all of his his own fears and traumas onto Kato, which is incredibly difficult to portray from the outside when someone has that much like baggage and trauma and like stuff going on in their own head. Let's get into Evermere and Evermere's personality because yeah. I think that seems to be a lot of why he doesn't get on with with Cardo at first. He has his sort of ideas of of what's proper and duty, and he just he just projects. So I, mm -hmm. I assumed that's why he didn't like. I don't know how you pronounce it. Tadek, Tadek, Tadek. That's why he Tadek. didn't like him yeah. because there's nothing wrong with the um, the fact that they had a relationship in the sense that they're both men, but he felt that it was wrong. Tadek's behavior the sort of flirting towards him is like that's not proper I don't like you and mm. as soon as he starts to relax a bit it makes such a difference and I really liked a scene a little exchange actually not even an exchange like his inner monologue 
on page 157 where Cardo has said to him that he doesn't need to be a robot. He's allowed to be a person. And the line is, His Highness said Evermere was supposed to be a person and not an automaton. If that were true, then by all Lille's all laws of fealty, Evermere had to reciprocate and allow the same of his liege, imperfection. And that seems to be a real turning point in his personality, where it's like, oh, actually, things mm. doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, because like that's something that we all kind of face in our uh, in our journey of learning how to view other people as as complex right because we see our own like messy backstage and we see like the the sort of performance that everyone else is putting on but it's it really is kind of an epiphany moment when you realize that other people the people around you are just as like fucked up as you are and have just as much stuff going on with themselves as as you do and that like if you allow them to be imperfect and you allow yourself to be imperfect with the knowledge that like that's okay and that you'll be forgiven for imperfections or at least like that people will work with you uh for being an imperfect person like that really is kind of a a amazing thing to realize um with Tadek specifically like there was also the level of the fact that he was involved in uh the situation with Kado that Evermer is initially like so angry about. Um, Evermer absolutely puts most of the blame on Kato because Kato is the the leader in this this situation and is therefore the responsible party, at least in Evermer's mind, um, for for what went wrong. Like he saw Tadek as like flighty and negligent, but at least obeying orders. Right? Again, from his perspective, <laughs> and. Um, and like he sees it as Kato's responsibility to, or he he sees that Kato should be taking responsibility uh, for what happened. And um, initially, like he he's uh, as you say, he's like projecting a lot and just like deciding that what he sees is like reality and not initially doing a good job at like double checking it and and um, being aware of his own biases and and prejudice. He wants. Cardo to take responsibility but then whatever Cardo does isn't good enough he puts on some morning clothes it's like well he's putting them on for too long and you know oh he's just sitting there feeling sorry for himself he should be doing this and I don't think whatever at the point that point whatever Cardo did would have been acceptable if he'd done everything properly it would have been like he's behaving too perfectly he's not showing any emotion he could, I don't think Kado could win yeah. at that point. No, no. At that point, there's no way that Kado would have won. Because the way that Evermer is projecting onto Kado is revealing so much about how Evermer treats himself. Because Evermer is so unforgiving with himself, which is why he is so disciplined and so perfect and does and like sees the world so black and white. He is not initially very good at I don't want to say seeing nuance, but dealing with nuance or or um, being accepting of nuance. He thinks that there's one right way to be and he is holding himself to that standard. And anyone who's deviating from that standard is um, doing it wrong. So, no, at that point, there's absolutely no way that that Kato would have won, um, because at that point, there's no way that Evermer is being healthy to himself either. Like it's he's kind of a 
they're both very fucked up at the beginning and they both they both need each other in order to like grow past that sort of mental block and those those boxes that they've they've put themselves in on page 160 he has an inner monologue where he says that he didn't let anybody sort of play the lord before because he didn't see them as worthy it's like you though Mm. you might be and that's not romantic feelings is it is it more is that more of a respect thing maybe a little bit romantic I think I think it's more at that point it's more respect it's more like that's Evermore beginning to shift and kind of like the first couple pebbles of the avalanche um I don't think it's it's quite romance yet no I didn't think it was I thought it was just you're not as bad as I thought yeah, I mean, and Evermer, Evermer has like all of these these like big, very intense emotions around um, like authority and uh, and leadership, and so it's a it's a little bit of that as well. So we've talked about Evermer's personality. So Carlo's personality. When you find out why he sort of considers himself a coward and why he behaves the way he does, you hear that story where it's like everything you do affects people. People could die because of how you act, and his sister who is older sees it for for what it is but because Carlo's young he can't kind of grasp it and he just feels like everything he does could have these negative implications that's a lot of trauma to put on a child I know that's not what was intended but yeah I just wanted to give him a hug at that point yeah (laughs) poor boy yeah for for sure like it was it if like the tutors that were assigned to him and Zeliha were when they were children had had their way um they would not have handled it in the way that it happened um but like basically Zeliha was about nine or ten years old I think and the the tutors um like took her down into the city and like showed her um the the poor and the sick uh in the city and said these are the vulnerable people like these are the people who are going to hurt first if you make a mistake. And like a nine or 10 year old has the capacity to like have a conversation about that and see that in a different way. Whereas a, I think Kata was like five or six at the time. He's really too young to, to have that kind of complicated lesson and too young to really have a full conversation about it later like he gets that lesson and then like for the next two weeks I think it says in the book like he doesn't ask for a second cup of tea at breakfast because he thinks that like he's taking it away from someone and like that's that's sort of like a brain just a brain development thing with with kids right is that like you have to be you have to be giving them the the lessons that they can handle or that are just like a teeny little above teeny little bit above what they can handle so that they work for it and Kato ended up getting a lesson that he was way too young to be to be getting at that point probably with other children they might have left off a couple more years after nine or ten like if Zeliha had been a different kind of personality she might have they might have waited until she was like 13 14 15 before having that conversation with her but she was quite like mature and collected for her age she's, she's always been kind of a badass like that is that what affected his or helped to develop his anxiety do you think i think that was a that was a big sort of 
that was part of it. Uh, I think that like it's a it's also a brain chemicals thing. Like he just did not have a a brain that was set up for it. But um, like sometimes you can get by with that and just be because like anxiety is mm. a spectrum, right? Like like there's different degrees of severity to it. Um, and if different things had happened, then Kato might have just ended up with a brain that was like inclined to anxiety, but because there weren't as many like traumatic experiences to, um, to trigger it and like being a, also like the situation that he's in um, is like just constantly triggering his anxiety. Um like I think that he he could have turned out a little bit a little bit more with a brain that cooperates with him and that is kinder to him. Um, but no, that was that was definitely like a big kind of foundational um, trauma event to what plays into his anxiety later on, especially because like he's stuck in the situation where like he always has to be watching what he's doing all of the time for fear of hurting other people. So it's like constantly being reminded of that trauma over and over again and he can't get away from it. It's so nice later that Evermere respects the a lot of the good qualities he has because it's like you're not a coward. Look look at the actual the good things that you've done. Look how brave you were. Mm. And just gives him that sort of affirmation while he learns to cooperate with his brain a bit more because I do feel like that progresses throughout the book yeah he he definitely learns a lot of I think he learns to trust himself a little bit more um he learns and practices dealing with some of his anxiety but also like at the end of the book he's he hasn't gotten rid of it it's still there it's still something that he copes with and it's still affecting him in some negative ways um like for example Evamar suggests that Kato attend fantasy therapy because there's fantasy therapy in this book and uh and Kato says oh no 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 I don't I don't think that I need that like no 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 um which is again like a thing that is very real that anxiety kind of kind of screws you over with like getting over that hump and like learning that it's okay to to ask for help or that like even talking about this and acknowledging that it's there out loud to someone who would be able to like practice constructive like coping skills with you um like that's a, a huge challenge um i think that kata will eventually make that step but as with so many people who have anxiety myself included the first time that someone suggests like hey do you think you might want to go to therapy you go like oh no 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 i don't need that i think you i think sometimes you you do need that and it gets to a point. You do, yeah. Oh, you absolutely, you absolutely do. I, th- going to therapy was one of the best things that I have ever done for my anxiety, um, and like my own mental health kind of kind of situation. Uh, therapy, especially like if you have a a good therapist, because of course, like therapy can also if you have a bad therapist, therapy can also like fuck you over. Um, but like if you can get a good therapist who is like focused on like helping you figure out your shit and getting your brain a little bit more in order, it can be so, so helpful. And I I think, I do think that Kato will eventually get to the point where he can make that step and acknowledge that this is something that he needs. But at this point, he's made great progress, but there's still like a long road to go ahead for him. It's mindset as well, isn't it? He needs to be in the right mindset for it. And he's been through quite a lot at the minute, yeah. maybe 
he's in a happier yeah. place so maybe then he'll be able to be more in touch with his his emotions and and his anxiety and be like actually no I'm I'm ready to go and address this now yes I think so I think like um yeah as you say like a lot of stuff has just happened to him so it might have not have been like a great time for Evermore to make that suggestion and have it be heard as he intended it but just like yeah I think like after some some time of decompression where Kato can take a couple steps away from it and like look back on things a little bit more objectively that will be a better place for him to to make that decision and we have to touch on the hair washing scene because it's so absolutely my favorite scene of the book well one of them one of my favorite scenes (laughs) the fact it was reciprocated it was so cute and Evermet seemed to actually enjoy Mm. having someone take care of him yeah yeah I I, he needed it I don't know that I would use the word enjoy per se because at that point like it's such an alien thing for him because the only person who's ever cared for him in that way is his mother and so like he's going through this whole difficult journey of like how to accept care and affection and and intimacy and I, I think that he does he does like it. It's a positive experience for him, but it's not enjoyment to me would be like being able to relax into it, which I think he is doing a little bit more by the end of the book. Like what, like when he's walking back from the fantasy therapy mm. and feeling wrung out like a dish towel and just wanting to like lay his head in Kato's lap and have his hair petted. Like the fact that he's actively wanting that comfort uh, at that point, it's like the one of the endpoints of his his personal growth journey but yeah like in the the hair washing scene i think it's just like i can have this like this is a thing that like i could get that does not compute page 246 mm-hmm. and 47 the first kiss not out kissing out of necessity because they need to kissing to avert suspicion hide from from people but Kissing to avert a suspicion. That has never happened to me, but, you know, well, if there's a, a hot bodyguard or something, maybe I would welcome it. The opportunity arises, you know. And Evermere has has feelings at this point, it seems, but I don't think Kado is in touch with mm. his feelings for Evermere. He obviously thinks Evermere is really hot. He notices that all the time. But do you think it must have been really mm. hard for Evermere because it must be so many emotions. He has never really had any kind of intimacy with anyone and suddenly this is happening. And he also seems really conflicted because of, of Tarek and judging him for and ever um judging him and Kado for what happened between them. Although Tarek goes about it in a different way with the yeah. over the top flirting in yeah. front of people. Uh yeah, Evermar is definitely kind of like going through it at this point. Um, he's only ever had he's so I wrote him as being demisexual which is that uh, for any of the listeners who don't know that uh, demisexual is like he doesn't experience sexual attraction until he has like an emotional connection with someone and he's really only had any kind of like physical interest in a person uh, once before and that was when he was like 16 years old um, and hormones were raging uh, and and so, like, he's kind of being hit with this wrecking ball of, like, he's dealing with his, like, growing to respect Kato more and the sort of adrenaline of, like, 
oh no, like, are we, are we in danger? Is, is my Lord in danger? And then also the, the wrecking ball of like, suddenly, oh, 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 I might be having like some sexy feelings as well. Um, like, is this allowed? Um, am I, I'm not going to be like Tadek, am I? Absolutely not. And like turning away from it initially. Um, so yeah, he's like, he's, he's going through it to say the least. Another thing I really enjoyed. So I read Pride and Prejudice when I did English Lit in college. And I still remember the quote when Emma has the love epiphany for marrying Mr. Knightley. And this is, my math is really bad. I was 16. Mm-hmm. So like eight, 18 years, maybe? No, Some wait, number 40. of years. <laughs> yeah. 18 years. Yeah, God. That was quite scary. But I still remember that quote. And there is something so satisfying for a reader when character has that moment. And we get that moment where where Karu suddenly realizes, excuse me, just flicking to the to the correct page, where it's thinking about someone they belong to. Evermill wasn't his, but he was, but he wasn't, but he was. And then he starts to realize. But he starts almost berating himself and calling himself a coward because he won't mm. let him admit it to himself the yeah he wanted evermere oh it must be so painfully obvious to everyone else like oh you're allowed, to, have boy, you're allowed to feel yeah. that way and and i mean it's all tying back into his trauma about hurting people right and like uh, especially like abusing people with his power uh he is fighting that every every step of the way and um like he he went through a similar kind of thing with Tadek. It was easier with Tadek because Tadek was like communicating his consent so enthusiastically at every point uh, of of that uh, situation, and then like for some weeks and months afterwards as well. So it's it's easier to to relax and trust that he that Kado knows what's going on in in Tadek's mind. Evermer is not very communicative. That's something that Evermer needs to work on. And even though they can read each other quite well, certainly better than anyone else can, because they're in love. Uh, like, Kato is aware that he might be wrong. Like, he has the the anxiety stuff happening to him. He has the trauma about, like, hurting people. And just, like, that that agonizing awareness at at every moment of the day that he is in a position where it would be incredibly easy for him to hurt people. And he is a good boy who doesn't want to hurt people. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a really tough situation. We talked earlier about how different people, with your magic system, different people would have a different palette with certain things and they would experience things in a certain way. <laughs> Page 402 and 403, where whatever mere takes yeah. the the pins out of the door to help them escape and then all of a sudden Kadu's senses for iron changes it's just like you were saying with the gold which ties into the title how clever that that was a significant moment that he has that such sort of visceral memory of it and now because of what's happened with Evermere iron is never yeah. going to be the same again and it's so cute that moment oh my god it was it was amazing. And it's just a full on sort of sensory overload when he touches the iron then. Yeah, just like have, having that locked in, like yeah, like every time he touches iron from now on, like he's going to remember this moment. And yeah, it's it's um it's a lot. 
well, is he just going to go around touching iron now just to get a little refresh of it? Honestly, I, I mean, I think so. Like at the, the end of the book, um, he spoilers for like the, the absolute end of the book. Uh, like he has Evermer take the the hinge pins to the palace jeweler to make them into bracelets or something. And so like he's going to have iron just on him all of the time. So I think that he probably will like be fiddling with his bracelet as kind of a self-soothing thing when he is feeling anxious and wanting to be distracted and wanting memories of like more sexier like Evermer being cool times. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think he probably will just like go around touching iron, and it's I mean it's also like it's a, cute, but it's also potentially inconvenient because iron's very a very common metal. You can find iron pretty much anywhere, just all over the place, especially like uh, in in settings like this. So uh, even if he doesn't wear his bracelet one day or loses it, like there's there's iron all over the place which he will be able to find as a sort of fiddle with or get distracted by in moments when he should be focusing on something else who knows i think that's what i would do i just because i would be constantly distracted yeah yeah it's, like, it's, it's a happy distraction but i need to find i mean my partner is blessed and they're lovely but romance mm -mm, they don't so yeah almost like get me someone who would have that romance in them to do that with the pins it's so cute thank you Malik, I was a little bit worried about when when they went missing and I sort of had a fear. It's like, are they going to be a double agent? Is there going to be something bad there? But no, thank God that didn't happen. Malik is fine. Malik is always going to be fine. I was so glad. I really liked the fact that you touched on on their asexuality mm. as well. And it was, again, it's just such a normative thing. Yeah. Uh, I myself am am also like on the asexual spectrum, and so it's something just that like I'm aware of um, all the time. Um, and we've we've talked a little bit about like the the queer normativeness um, of the the setting. Um, every culture in this world is going to handle queerness differently. Some of them are going to be better at one thing than another. One thing that Arashd is n not as good at as they could be is asexuality. They're not phobic about it like they're they're not um oppressive about it but just sort of like the cultural uh that the ambient cultural expectations um don't have asexuality baked in the way that they have uh same-sex uh relationships or the third gender baked into them um like with the focus on sex being a part of marriage or Melek mentioning like, oh, I thought that like I was the only one who felt that way. Like I didn't know that other people felt that way. How interesting. It's not something that matters to Melek very much. It's not something that registers uh, to Melek as all that important. Um, but it's still, I think other people in, in the setting might find it a little bit isolating. And this is, it's, you know, when I'm deciding like what, and how to write about something like this it's really difficult to balance because on one hand like no culture on earth has ever gotten it perfectly and you can't get it perfectly because there are so many ways for people to be and a culture is like a set of boxes right and if you have 20 different boxes to for people to put themselves in there's always going to be like person number 21 who's like none of these boxes fit me 
And it sucks that I don't have a box to fit myself into. So it's it's really interesting to explore queerness from all of these different perspectives of these different cultures in the world and show like, okay, well, one culture has uh, handled it this way and one culture has handled it this way. I don't think any culture, again, like in real life is ever going to get it perfectly, but it's interesting to show the different ways in which they can get it slightly imperfectly. I think that's more honest and real and human too, is again, like allowing allowing for for imperfection and allowing the people around you to have opportunities to grow. Is that why there was, oh, it seemed to me like a choice not to actually show sex in the book. It's, you see things like before and afterwards, but mm. you don't have actual sex in the book. Uh, I think that was more just personal preference. I don't think that like the, the asexuality really played into it too much. Um, it was, it just seemed like that's what they wanted. I think it was, I think it was also like, like sometimes characters are so real in your head that you're like, oh, I need to give them privacy. Like I can't, I can't, I can't look directly at this. Let's just like give them a room by themselves to like do whatever in. And also like, I wanted to leave space for, cause like I, I come from such a strong background in fan fiction. Like I wanted there to be gaps for people to fill in with their own sort of imaginings and their own um, their own stories if that was something that they felt like doing so so yeah it was a little bit of of all of those factors I was quite happy with the choice not to have it in the book Mm. I don't always feel like it's necessary like if I'm going to get hot from a book give me like the slow burn give me the sexual tension even like the hot kissing scenes that you gave us but we don't always need to have sex in the book you don't and and I think by the time by the time that that's a that's a fantastic point because at the time because by the time that Kato and Evermore would have been having sex, sex would not be doing that much to build their character arcs for, it would be like opening up a whole new character arc, which mm. like I'm running out of space in the book. <laughs> like I, I have to resolve these character arcs. That would be like a whole, a whole different like arc of their, their journey of their relationship. Right. Mm. Um, is like learning how to negotiate, um, intimacy like that yeah and and so like the the physical intimacy scenes that are functioning as are that are functioning in the role of sex scenes shall we say are the hair washing scene and the erotic hand holding scene when they get back from um from being kidnapped and like they're lying in evermere's childhood bed just like holding hands and it's like the most intense thing that either of them could possibly imagine like those are those are fulfilling the role that a sex scene would fulfill and it's just doing it without genitals being involved I loved I loved that about the book I thank thought you. that was brilliant thank you so it's, much yeah we don't always you don't always need gratuitous sex scenes yeah. in books and you can and you can find other ways to to showcase physical intimacy and like like other things can also be made into meaningful and intense gestures. I think we often go to sex scenes because they're like a shorthand for emotional intensity. Um, and it, but if you if you do enough of the work, you can make handholding into something incredibly intense as well. So it's yeah, I I think that it's 
it's interesting to to have made a different choice and to have like because it, it makes you kind of like as a writer it makes you pull apart the scene and like look at like what is this kind of scene doing and how do I do it from like a slightly different angle we need to touch on my MVP of the book who was Tenzin mm. in fact she cared so much about getting out of the expensive wine and also the comments she made on page 412 where she was there she was like lies lies I was like, you're not getting paid for this. And she just said that she was being paid in chaos. I was like, I love you. Like, she she was hilarious. So I did love her. She's she's very funny. Yeah. Uh, I hope that that one day I might get around to writing a book about the the nation that she's from, because there's like a lot of interesting backstory and world building about uh, the the truth witches um, that again there just wasn't <laughs> there just wasn't enough space in this book to to like go into all of the everything and all of the intricate details hopefully one day oh you're building a whole world so it's fine we can wait <laughs> so i have two more questions because god i've been i've been talking to you forever how did you say you pronounce name zelia zelia yeah she apologizes to kado for not being a better sister when she finds out about about Cyrus. Do you think she made good decisions with with everything she did? Mm. Um, or do you think she was right to apologize? I I think she was I do absolutely think that she was right to apologize. I think that she was making the best decisions that she could given the information that she had available. Um I think that she as a ruler is a very prudent and level-headed sort of person. Actually, no, I think that like there were times in the book where she failed, like she was her goal was to make the best decisions. But there were times when she did fall down on that and when she made decisions that were based on emotion or where she let herself be blinded by infatuation because she, too, is human and makes mistakes and she wanted something that Cyrenos seemed like he was going to provide and be be able to to sustain and i think that she wasn't seeing the reality of him as much as she could have been i think that she was seeing kind of the surface level of him and kind of interpreting him and thinking of him as what she wanted him to be rather than the actual person that he was um which we've all been there like this is a a real kind of set of mistakes that real people make so yeah just like just like with all of my characters like she's got stuff going on in her own head and she stumbles sometimes and she fucks up but she's doing her best and like she loves her brother so much and so yeah I think that she probably was right to apologize for straying away from the the trust and um solidity of that relationship you might not be able to answer this next question because I'm going to ask you about your future plans in a second but do they have a happy ever after who, Kato and Evermore? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Of course they do. Good. Well, I hope so. <laughs> one day one day they're going to adopt like six kids. 
Good. Evermer, Evermer is baby crazy. Uh, yeah, they're going to adopt six kids, and um, I do have some ideas of about what will happen to them in the future. I don't know if like I'll get to write that. We'll find out someday. Also, I just have like so many ideas for books all of the time. Um, like there's not enough hours in the day to, <laughs> to write everything. But no, yeah, they they absolutely like stay together for the rest of their lives, and they're perfectly happy, and and everything is wonderful. Thank God. Yeah. I mean, naturally, like with any relationship, like you go through rough patches or like external stuff happens, which is is stressful. But yeah, like they are they are an incredibly solid team uh, at this point in in their growth arc. And they're absolutely never letting go of each other. Good. (laughs) Good. I wouldn't let you down like that. Come on. (laughs) Do they have a happy ending? Come on. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to me about a taste of golden iron. What future plans do you have? Uh, just like in general, in my personal life, or are we talking for writing? <laughs> I mean, shut up. Um, well, I mean, in your writing career, but if you've got something exciting anyway. Well, no, mostly, mostly it's, it's writing stuff at the moment. Um, so I have another novel coming out from tour.com, which uh, hasn't been announced yet. So I don't want to go too much into it. Um, I will sort of give you like a one word kind of hinty sneak peek, which is just pirates. Ooh. That's great. Um, that's all I'll say at the moment. Uh, and of course, like I'm also, uh, I've been doing the hybrid publishing and both like traditionally publishing and uh, independently publishing some pieces as well. Uh, so I'll be continuing to do that. That's been very exciting. And that's been like really uh, a really wonderful experience this year, just like being able to reach my audience in a a different way on a different level and like really connect with the the readers who are like my most dedicated fans. Um, that's been completely fantastic and positive. Yeah. So just like lots more books coming, um, all of them set in, in this world more just like uh, increasing the scope of the world and like the, the uh, depth and the, the texture and the vibrancy of, of everything. Like the more information that you get, I think that it will be like kind of exponential growth or at least like a perception of it well I can't wait to now read everything you've written thank you I hope you like it (laughs) well I love this so I'm sure that I will where can people go to follow you to find out about all of your announcements and future book plans stuff like that absolutely so I'm on Twitter and Instagram as at underscore Alex Roland um but the best place to uh, follow me for updates is to um, sign up for my newsletter on my website or to join my official uh, discord server which is also linked on the front page of my website um, I have a patreon as well um, so yeah just uh, any any of those would probably be the best I'm not on Twitter and Instagram as much as I as I have been in the past we will put links to all of your stuff in the episode description so that our listeners will be able to find you and follow you fantastic but seriously, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. To thank you so talk much. About the book with you. Your questions were wonderful. It's been a pleasure to to come in and, and talk about it.
Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Alex. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast. And for more of our author-based episodes and our mythology episodes, please check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. I've been Lauren, and today I've been turning pages with Alex Rowland.